This is Ruth Mukwana, a humanitarian worker and a writer. In 2021, 235 million people will need humanitarian assistance and protection. While these statistics are shocking, they don't tell the complete human story. This podcast talks to the people responding to this crisis, the people affected by them, and the writers telling their stories. This is Stories and Humanitarian Action. Today I am speaking to Daphne Kologe. She's the author of Russian Winter, Sight Reading, Blue Hours and Calamity and Other Stories. She teaches at Princeton University's program in creative writing. How are you today, Daphne? I'm very well, thank you. Yeah, and thank you so much for really agreeing to speak with me. Oh, it's a pleasure. I'm honored. And of course, I'd love to talk to you about Blue Hours. I, you know, I'm, as a humanitarian aid worker, I was really, really, really also very much to see what kind of research went into capturing the, you know, the life of humanitarian aid workers and Kira's letters, because I thought that was really, really well done. Of course, so many other parts of the books. It's a really, really great book. Congratulations. Thank you. That means so much to me, I have to say. First of all, just that you read it and enjoyed it, but also I really wanted to get that part right. A, a really dear friend of mine has worked for the International Red Cross for a long, long time. And that, I mean, he's, he was part of the reason I wanted to write this book. Then from that, just in part of my research, specifically into Afghanistan during those, those years, part of the reading that I did on some you know, specific experiences there was memoirs and, and other writing by humanitarian aid workers who had been there. So that really helped me. And talking also to another friend of mine from graduate school, actually here in, in Boston, who ended up going into foreign aid work. Um, and then he would say, oh, you need to talk to this person. So, and I found that that happens often when I decide that I want to write something and I feel such you know, great apprehension when I don't really know so much about the topic. And then once I really commit to it, I find that, that, that it just that whole world opens up to me and people really are so helpful once I kind of delve into the research. No, it's really well done. I really enjoyed the book, and that's why I really also wanted to talk to you about it. First, tell me about yourself. Well, I'm a writer and I'm a teacher, and I I grew up in New Jersey, but my parents came there from Canada. My mother is Canadian. My father grew up in Hungary, but came to Canada at the age of 16 with his family. They were fleeing from the uprising against the Soviet occupation there. So I grew up in a household where not just my relatives, but a lot of friends of the family had come from afar or had lived through events that a lot of Americans maybe haven't experienced. But I think that this also has really shaped my perspective. Yeah. And um, why do you write? You know, I think I write to try to save things. It's almost my type of hoarding. I'm trying to save things for posterity. I'm, I'm trying to save stories, not just family stories, 
you know, I think a lot of this comes from my family story, you know, what they left behind, not right. just having left, you know, hungry. Also, my father's a Holocaust survivor that also feeds into a lot of what I'm writing, the stories that I've heard from my grandmother, my other relatives, and thinking about the fact that a lot of those survivors are not going to be around um, and wanting to preserve those stories. But also just things that I see during the day, even, and, you know, yeah. that, that, that practice of writing in a diary, even, you know, and, and feeling like, what's going to happen to this? I, I don't want to forget it. I think that, that it's, it's my, my way of trying to save something and feeling like, well, this is the one thing I know to do. Part of the reason, as you know, I'm doing this project is really to explore how storytelling can raise awareness and galvanize action to address the causes and consequences of, of humanitarian crisis. The largest or the main driver of crisis is really conflict, you know, and, and conflict has quite a devastating impact on people's lives. And sometimes, of course, the same people are being affected by natural disasters and now the pandemic. But tell me, you know, how do you see the role of storytelling to do this? I mean, I think it's so powerful. It can communicate to someone who might otherwise not understand the full consequence of conflict on somebody's life, something that seems general or even so huge that it's not even fully comprehensible. It suddenly becomes concrete. It becomes tangible. It becomes intimate. For that, it's incredibly powerful. I also think it breaks down stereotypes, something that, that is so generalized as to become a type, right? It's just typical. Um, no, then you read it and you see, no, 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 no. It has all of these facets. I feel that that's something literature can do in a way that almost not even a movie can do right. because it's so intimate. I'm going to come back to some of these points you just made now in a bit, but I was wanting to ask you to read an excerpt from, from, Blue, from Blue Hours Now, and then we will get into a deeper discussion on it. Sure. We were college graduates, blasé about it. Diplomas rolled into tubes. It was 1991. A diploma couldn't save you from having to stand behind a shop counter or sit answering a telephone at the front of some office. Saddam Hussein was back again. Yugoslavia was at war. The U.S. economy was sadly napping. With two school friends, I'd come to Manhattan straight from graduation, knowing only that I wanted to write. You could do that then. Move to the city without a job or a plan, just some unreasonable dream, and survive. We took what work we could find. I spent the days folding sweaters at a clothing store. And Adrian, who was going to be an actress, waited tables at a place on Mercer. The other girl took a job as a receptionist at a dental office. We had managed to find a three-bedroom walk-up on a nondescript stretch of Lafayette that wasn't quite Soho and wasn't quite Chinatown. Little Italy, too, was a block away. Exposed brick walls, two crumbling bathroom, uh, bathrooms, and an apparent mild gas leak. If there was money laundering going on, that was not our business. Our windows looked out over a cement traffic island that turned the street you suddenly 
uselessly one way so that few cars ever passed. Vagrants spent long hours there in looping conversation. He looks at me, says, I'm gonna let you go now. I'm gonna let you go now, just like that. Or maybe gone into shoe repair with my uncle. I mean, come on, it was just two times. Tied a yellow ribbon, sure, just don't ask what else she did. Ancient grievances lobbed back and forth. The men never begged, or at least not for me. They probably knew I had little to offer with my crumpled paper bags from the corner deli. The stupid hunger of college girls who never learned to cook. Macaroni from a box with its little packet of orange powder. Brittled bricks of curly noodles plunged into broth. When my shift at the clothing store ended, I'd walk home from Broadway, along Broadway, empty-bellied, lightheaded, swooning at the pungent gusts from food carts. Too sweet gray smoke of candied almonds or toasty pretzels covered in big square flecks of salt. Once, I found myself in a cheap accessory shop, paying for a necklace whose red glass beads looked like cherry candy. Only when I'd left with necklace in hand did I understand that what I wanted was not to wear it, but to eat it. And I'll stop there. Thank you. Thank you. This is where we meet actually at least the main character, Miriam. Can you tell me more about Miriam? Yes. So Miriam, who goes by the name Mim, is our narrator throughout the novel and um, at this point, at the beginning of the book, she has just graduated from college and moved to New York, where she's moving in with a bunch of girlfriends from school. And she is from a pretty lower middle class background and has sort of been hiding that fact. So that's sort of one of her secrets that she carries with her as she's as, as she's been going through school, actually. And she's sort of trying to fit in now and living this kind of aspirational life now in a sort of pre-boom New York City. And then we see her in the, in the present where she's actually become a writer and is living um, a very reclusive life in Western Massachusetts 20 yeah. years later. And why is she living this reclusive life? Because of what has happened in this brief period that she has lived with these friends where she makes these really, really important connections with a few key friends, one of whom is a, a rich, beautiful dancer, Kira, and then their mutual friend, Carl. And then because of what happens, this this kind of huge calamity, she really leaves that life and goes and just doesn't look back and really sort of shuts herself off in many ways emotionally and also from the world, you know, not just from her emotions and from her friends, but but from almost from 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 geography. Yeah. And it is, I mean, the story is about so many, so many things. And I was very touched by the love. I'm always also very fascinated by humans' ability to love. And at the same time, to also impact high levels of violence. And I just want to 
ask you about what was your sort of thinking in weaving this really intimate human connections between these uh, characters throughout the story? First of all, I really wanted the character of Carl to be in the story because he's, on the one hand, you know, in terms of social class and economic class, he has a lot in common with men. She's kind of trying to run away from that. And yet he represents, for me in the book, so many Americans, right, who because of opportunities that they don't have, um, economic opportunities in particular, he's gone into the armed services and he, you know, here's something that, that Mim has these moral opinions about. In fact, this also has a lot to do with his economic station. And she she gets to know him and she gets to know how this experience has left a real lasting impact on him. So that was important to me. And then with Kira, what was really important to me about that relationship was that I needed Mim to have to really step outside of or, or beyond herself, right? This is really a book about people crossing boundaries. And that, in this case, right, it's this romantic and sexual boundary that she crosses at first. And for her, that that's it's a really huge deal. And, and she's, at first, it's just a, a social and economic class kind of difference that she's kind of crossing into that world. And this love really changes her. And, and ultimately, in part two, you know, she follows her heart and, and crosses a huge geographical boundary and, and cultural boundary. Yeah. And going back to Carl, so you've explained a little bit how he ended up in the army. There was a lot of mental health issues in, in the story. And in my reading of this story in the beginning, Mim and Kira perhaps want understanding that he was suffering from mental health from PTSD and but again I just want to ask you a little bit about uh, the impact the war had on, on Carl. Yes I talked to a specialist who, who actually served in the first Gulf War and then actually ended up becoming practicing psychiatrist who that's, that's his specialty. What he pointed out to me was how now, because in Afghanistan, our war has been going on for so long, we, there's such a huge number of our servicemen and women now who are coming home and, you know, dealing with these, you know, lingering psychological issues, right? The longer we're there, the more chance there is that that you're coming home with you know these scars so i wanted to you know uh, the, the point of this book often somebody i'll get the question well how did the two parts of the book connect i mean this is one of the connections i i'm hoping that this echo carries over from carl to part two right carl you know his trauma comes from a different war but this, we are now in another war that was, that gone on, right, that war was a very, very quick war. But his damage would have lingered for, you know, however long. And that's, so that's what I'm trying to, to show. 
Yeah. And I remember reading, I can't remember the pages, but there's a moment there when he has this episode and I think he remembers the first day of the war when he was there and then the trucks drive over Iraqis. And, and, and I mean, I couldn't possibly imagine anyone living with that for the rest of their lives. And then he sort of talking about what coming back, what the focus is, it's on, you know, on medals and, and, and things like that, rather than really the impact of what he had seen and been part of. I found that detail in an actual report. And it's funny because it was, it was, it was in book form, but a, one of those books that's almost just like a manuscript that's been typed out and then put between covers. So I saw that somebody said, I saw, you know, we drove over, this really happened, this really happened. And, and that just haunted me. So I included this detail. And then when I was later doing fact checking, one of the people I had fact checked was someone who had served both in the first Gulf War and then in Afghanistan. And he was quite high up. And when he read that section, he said, you read our report. <laughs> he, he knew about that, but like, you yeah. know, he said, but it's like, not, there's nothing people know, right? Because yeah. they, they think, oh, that's the war where like, you know, just, we dropped some bombs and that's where people maybe died. But. And I'm curious with war and, and, and I know America is involved in, in, in several wars, but I'm also curious in terms of how it's reported on in the media and what the focus is. I mean, one of the things I'm actually always also sort of fascinated by is, you know, who's telling the story, who is, whose story and, and where is it being heard? And I just wonder if you could say something just about that. And I, I, I think about this so much with, you know, whose voice is going to be heard in a story of war, right, where we have, in this case, you know, on the one hand, in, in this book, right, I have, yeah. okay, the people like Carl who go over, and then I have the people like Kira who go yeah. over, right? And, and what I was trying to show is they're both in a similar predicament, right, yeah. of, of this kind of antagonistic relationship and all the quandaries that they're, they're, they find themselves in. Mim goes over, right, and this is what was so hard for me to show because, of course, I was stuck writing in Mim's voice. Right. I'm writing in the naive American voice. And then there she is. And who is she meeting? Well, she's actually there for many, many pages with the Afghan citizens who whose land. Right. This war is taking place on. And they, of course, know this experience much better than she does. So this was a real struggle for me as the writer, writer who had spent years doing the research and trying to think, well, I know this, I know this now. Well, okay, first of all, I only know it so well, but second of all, I'm trying to be true to the character who yeah. doesn't know it so well. Yeah. <laughs> right. So that was, that was hard. And thinking, well, I, I, I have to be true to what she wouldn't know. And the fact that she doesn't understand what people are saying around her. She can't have lots of conversations with a lot of people who she's in these scenes with. 
Yeah. Um, so this, the, 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 these scenes are going to be very limited in terms of what can be communicated to the reader. And she's also a woman. <laughs> and she's a woman. So she's being left out of half of the scenes where the men go off together. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Why Afghanistan? And how did America end up in this war that's gone on for years and years and years? I know. You know, I have to say, it took me a while to actually commit to to this book ending up in Afghanistan because I didn't, she didn't have to go there. But but the answer why is because that is where America is and has been, you know, and and we've been there now two decades, right? And it is our longest war. And and the fact is, you know, it's amazing to me, right? That we, we are still there. We're supposed to be right now, you know, as you and I sit here talking, yeah. this, this peace process is supposed to be taking place. Yeah. No, I mean, in fact, as I was preparing for my interview with you, I was actually last night looking at the numbers in terms of humanitarian assistance. It's really, really horrific. And, um, but also just the attacks. Um, I remember speaking to a colleague of mine from Afghanistan and, and he was just saying, you know, just imagine leaving every day, not knowing if there's going to be a bomb somewhere. But also the target now, as we speak on working women, for example, and just sort of leaving with that every day. And at the same time, I think going back to the point you talked a little bit about earlier on stories making at least people's lives at an individual level very specific. While we can do that through stories, when you read the media, it's always very generalized and it's very difficult to really process what that means for that one parent, that one child, that one husband or wife who's lost a family. Yes, and I think also the problem is that often the stories we're seeing are the same tragic story, right? It yeah. is that same picture, right? The men bending over the grave, right? Or the woman crying. And this is, we become numb to it, right? Yeah. And we're not seeing the loving, happy family being a family where we go, oh, look, they're a family just like us. Because I think if if you haven't lived through crying over your family member, right, it's hard for you to maybe sit there and just actually sit there for a minute and say, that could be me. That could be my mother. And then all those pictures look the same. And I think that it, this is a real problem, that that there aren't enough stories just of, you know, let's look at what else is going on over there in this country where we are too. And there is quite a lot of violence in the book. But again, just for me, just maybe to ask you about, you know, in the story about the impact of war and how you really read that in, was that deliberate for you as a writer? Yes, because... This is, uh, yeah, unfortunately, right, part of the consequence of war that we see this. I mean, first of all, these are the physical scars, right? I mean, there are so many lasting consequences, but I wanted people to see the physical marks. I wanted to see the, the ways that this affects families, 
the, the anger, right, that yeah. people carry with them, which we also see when, you know, Mim hears about somebody who's possibly planning to do something against the Americans or and somebody says, oh, well, right, some, he's like that because his son was killed and by, by a, an American bomb. And, right, and I think this is all real, you know, this, this happens. I remember that scene, I think it's when they were looking for, yeah, yeah, when she's in this village, I don't remember, the, I don't remember the name of the village, and they're looking, she's trying to understand where um, Kira and uh, Jorgen have been taken to, and is, you know, they are telling her, oh, this guy may have gone with them, but he wasn't always like that, but you know, a NATO bomb, if I remember, uh, killed, uh, you know, his family member, and since then, I think that's... Yes, that's exactly right. And, you know, so he carries this grudge, and I think there, this is what I want to show is that the there are consequences and and people retaliate. There's so. also like um, a moment there, I think it's Asim, who, who, who is really like, he doesn't get it. He's like, well, the Americans have all of these, you know, state-of-the-art military equipment. The Taliban's done. How come they, they haven't won this war? Well, and that was something that I saw in multiple books that I read, but I saw this in multiple books where people were sort of writing about our situation there. Um, so either journalistic books and more kind of policy books um, talking about why has this not been kind of wrapped up. And yeah. this came up multiple times where that they, they say, you know, why you guys have all this fancy equipment? The Taliban are going around in flip-flops. <laughs> you know, and it's true. And it's because, well, at first, of course, we really went in there with thinking we knew stuff and we didn't know. We can't went in there with hubris, basically. And that's just going to get you into a lot of trouble. Yeah. And, and it I mean, happens a lot in many wars where there is this idea, I don't know, from policymakers, but we're really... Um, there's a belief they will go in and come out. And really was gone for years and years and years. And it's just best not to start them, to be honest. But but then you also, of course, you know, Kira is abducted. And that's how Mim ends up traveling to Afghanistan. I think from that point onward, it becomes much bigger than just Afghanistan. Um, and I know it also brings back at least Adrian back into uh, the story. She's now a celebrity. Could you just talk to me a little bit about that, uh, the abduction, trying to save her? Well, that was something that was interesting in my research, was seeing in so many of these kidnapping situations, because there have been so many, the different ways that different governments handle this, um, because yeah. some governments do pay. And then others say, no, we do not negotiate with terrorists. And what are the kind of loopholes then that people go through, right? So I was thinking, and the truth is, one of the little kind of nuggets that got me 
thinking when I was writing this book was when I, the very first time that I heard about Bo Bergdahl. Mm-hmm. And it was when I remember the very first time I heard about him on the radio, it was a year before it became a big to do was I heard about him on the radio. I just heard there's an American serviceman. He's being held by the Taliban and, and there's possibility of swapping some prisoners for him. And I was like, really? They would, I was so shocked. And then it just evaporated. And I, and I remember I was like searching around on the internet and I couldn't find anything about it. And it just totally went away. And then a year later it happened. So I was thinking about that. And so, yeah. And then I also thought about, it also always interests me when celebrities get involved in uh, political situations because, you know, they do have some weight, right? They do have some power. And at the same time, sometimes I find myself getting a little bit nervous because I think, oh no, are they going to sound stupid when they talk? Because maybe they don't know what they're talking about, but but it's really heartfelt, you know. Um, and and in fact, be powerful and, and get a lot of people involved and 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 make something that otherwise maybe people wouldn't be thinking about or wouldn't know about make it really a topic of interest and and suddenly people care about it. So so that was something that I wanted to to kind of tap into there. And I wanted to bring Adrian back in that way. And also the other question I wanted to ask, and then I'm going to wrap up, you know, as they're trying to save Kira, there's a moment there when Mim is really self-reflecting again. And I think I'll just quote thing there. She says, all this hubbub for a single American. Meanwhile, entire nations struggle, entire populations flee to buses that never leave, to boats that never touch land. Imagine what Roy's belt of money could do for them. Imagine, she imagines this is what Kira would say. Can you just talk to me a little bit about what's going on there? Yes, because I really did think to myself that, you know, this character, Kira, that is what she would think. You know, Um, all this effort, all this money for one person. And that's what galvanizes. Americans, right? Oh no, right? We have somebody being held hostage in another country. And yet when they see an article about the crisis in that country, they turn the page. What would you like, you know, readers reading Blue Hours to take from your book? When I showed the first draft of it to an Afghan reader from that same area she said to me specifically she said you know so much of what people read about my country is sad I would really love for people to see some happy people (laughs) again some and some happy couples and you know so I specifically tried to show some people you know who had loving relationships and were and were despite their situation able to feel joy and 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 because that's who we are as human beings and we all know that right from our own situation so so I hope that that people were able to connect with all the characters in the book and to take from the book this sense that you know even on this huge globe we call the earth we all are connected and what one action can people out there who listen to this conversation 
do to address the causes? Maybe we can even just talk about the war in Afghanistan. So if you are to think about, you know, for example, an American who may read your book, who may read through this conversation, what action could they take to help address or, you know, stop that war in, in Afghanistan? I like to ask this question as well because it seems so insurmountable sometimes. Um, and for a lot of us, it's difficult to always think through, even if we wanted to do something, what could that be? So I'd always like to hear perspectives from the different people. Oh, that's such a good question. Oh my gosh. I feel that this is about being involved in what's going on in your world, your government, even at the most local level in decision-making and having your voice heard. So that's what, that's my answer. I mean, I'm not doing what you're doing, which is the actual work on the front lines, but uh, I think there are ways to, to work also on the back end, right? Thank you. Um, this is, that was my last question, unless you have questions for me. Oh my gosh, these were such thoughtful, excellent questions. I'll tell you, I have one question for you. Sure. Was there anything in the book in terms of the um, humanitarian aid sections that was a little bit off? No, no, I really, and I really, really loved um, the book very much. I also know, you know, of course it was Mim's uh, point of view and Roy, and of course you are also staying to them as characters in that setting. Kira's letters were all spot on and the introspection, the struggles and questioning of trying to understand why am I here? Am I contributing? Am I making a difference? Am I actually benefiting of people's suffering? And of course, you also capture the privilege uh, of humanitarian workers, because no matter what's going on, of course, for Kira, she was abducted. That's a really, really high price to pay for anyone. And sadly, we see more and more aid workers being abducted across the world. And international staff tend to make it more on the media, but we see a lot of national, you know, colleagues of, of ours in these countries uh, being abducted. So, no, I thought you, you, you did a really, really fantastic job. Well, thank you so much. You know, I really appreciate your reading it. It means a lot to me. So. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you, Ruth. Have okay. a great rest of your day. You too. Thanks. Take care. Alrighty. Bye-bye. Bye. To the listeners, thank you so much for listening. You can get more information about me on Twitter at Ruth underscore Mukwana. That is R-U-T-H underscore M-U-K-W-A-N-A. And my blog, ruthmukwana.com slash blog. Goodbye. Special thanks to my co-producer, Jamal Swift. Music by the Nomadic Band.